0: everyone, I'm Artemis. And I'm Rajni, and we are STEM Women in Kidlet. I'm an entomology technician, and the author of Do Jellyfish Like Peanut Butter? Amazing Sea Creature Facts, and The Grumpy Pirate.
1: I'm a doctor and the author of the middle grade novels, Midsummer's Mayhem, Red, White and Whole, Much Ado About Baseball, and the picture books, Seven Golden Rings, Bracelets for Bina's Brothers, and more.
0: Hi everyone. Today on STEM Women in KidLit, we're here talking with Sarah Lynn Rule. Sarah is a science educator and the KidLit author and illustrator of books such as NERP and Farm the Farm.
2: Hi Sarah. Hi everyone. Hi Sarah, so excited to have you here. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here too. So,
0: Sarah, we'd love to know a little bit about how your STEM background has influenced your illustrations.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think throughout my life and my career, science and art have kind of woven together. So, um, when I was in like high school, I worked at the zoo um, in Brooklyn, and I really you know helped out with the animals in the education department there. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. So, when I went to college, I um, studied like organism level biology, like, ornithology, herpetology, all of those things. But then I've sort of drifted back and forth. Like, as then I worked in nonprofits for a long time, I worked at the Museum of Science, um, teaching in their overnight program and helping them run their internship program. And then I went back to school because I missed drawing and I wanted to draw again. When I was in college, I used to draw all of the specimens so that I could remember all the different species and everything. So, um, I went back to school to study animation because um, not only are you, do you have to draw really accurately for animation, but you also draw over time. And I thought that illusion of life was really an interesting thing to go for, sort of um, things coming alive. Um, and then I started doing picture books after that. So, and now I do some um, scientific illustration like for the museum of science. I just finished some um, murals for their new climate change in New England. It's a bit
0: Well, that's awesome. What is your favorite animal to draw?
2: Oh, oh my goodness. I can't choose. (laughs) I think, you know, I guess I like animals that, like any animal that seems that that I can make it have sort of like an expression, like an anthropomorphic expression, which isn't very scientific. Um, But like, I really like, I don't know, like angry looking birds, like um, (laughs) caracaras or like, um, (laughs) or like, I don't know, like eagles, like with their like big, you know, their eyebrows. they're they're not angry but to me they feel that way so I like (laughs) what's the hardest animal for you to draw Mm, you know I don't know if there's like a specific species that's hard to draw but I sometimes I have trouble with muzzles so like if you're talking about like uh even like a dog muzzle if you're Mm -hmm. facing head on you've got that foreshortening so like trying to like I just drew some bats for the museum of science for like a spot illustration for their exhibit and i was having some trouble with I had one bat that was looking straight sort of at the pretend camera of my drawing and um, getting the muzzle to have some depth was difficult. But I don't think there's any. I always look for lots of um, reference images when I'm drawing. So I try to find lots of different reference images. And if you can get sort of a feel for what it is, I think you can. anything is anything is drawable. So
1: so you're an illustrator and an author. Do you think STEM influences your stories as well? Your storylines?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Rajani. I, um, you know, I think for the books that that have been published, probably not so much. Um, But when the books that I play around with, like some ideas that I play around with for sure, and some books that haven't yet been published, um, I think... Yeah, well, actually, you know what? I want to say also, like, sort of like the scientific method and the whole concept, the whole like engineering design process of like failing and then trying again and then sort of like tweaking things and trying again and like that failure built into stuff. Yeah, that definitely is that is my writing process, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think actually it actually is very similar to a lot of my my storylines, even in my published books. So, uh, so so there, I'm revising that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes. Failure is part of everything, right? Definitely in STEM and for sure in writing and illustrating. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Did you start writing first or illustrating first or kind of both evolved organically together?
2: Yeah. So I definitely started illustrating first when I, um, I went back to school as an adult about 10 years ago to become an animator and, um, and then I sort of found that really wasn't the best fit for me, but I really liked the storytelling aspect of illustration. So I thought that I'd be an illustrator and I'd illustrate other people's books. But as I was developing a portfolio, I realized that I needed to have sort of stories to back up my illustrations. And that's really how I started writing.
0: Now that you've done both the writing and the illustrating, uh, when you're writing a book that you both author and illustrate, does the character come first or does the story come first?
2: definitely so I found recently that I the writing comes first now like I might do a bunch of sketches or something but it's easier for me to like make a big messy sheet of like words and um sort of like disparate ideas and then maybe I'll do a bunch of sketches but I but I definitely I think I sort of get the structure down with the um with the words first yeah that's cool.
0: On one of our past podcasts, we were talking a little bit about, um, writer's notebooks and stuff like that. Do you carry a sketchbook around with you at all? Or do you tend to more just sit down at a desk and dump your ideas then?
2: Yeah. I always feel like I should be carrying around a sketchbook when I was in animation school. That's what they said. Always draw, like draw all the time. And I think, so. I always feel like I should be drawing more than I am, but you know, there's life. I have two kids like, um, There's sometimes I just don't have enough brain space for that. So I'll go through periods of time where I do like hundred day challenges where each day I'm trying to do maybe like a specific thing like I'll choose something for my hundred days like drawing on photos every day or um, actually before the pandemic and sort of into the pandemic, I was doing a lot of journaling like Linda Barry. um, If you know Linda Barry, she's a cartoonist. Yeah, Linda Barry has these great books about drawing and one of them is called what it is and another one's about drawing and um she really sort of talks about what images are and has different ways of playing with that concept through daily practice like journaling so um I was doing a lot of that um for for the in the past year I haven't done it in the last couple months I feel and I feel the itch I need to get back to it again
1: can you tell us a little bit about, I feel like you've done, I don't know what they're called, but I feel like you've done these things where you post, you draw or create something visual every day for like a certain number of days and you post them. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I started maybe like five years ago trying to do these 100 day projects. It was started by an artist named El Luna on Instagram. And the concept was just that it's you would do like hashtag the 100 day project and then you'd pick your own unique hashtag for like that run. So um, two years in a row, I did, um, you know, hashtag 100 days of drawing on photos. And then um, where I would take a photo every day with my iPhone and then I would draw on it, like add something fun. And like, I had to pick, like I would like take a picture of my kids walking down the street and like, then in the picture, they'd be like holding hands with the dinosaur or something like that. Um, and then I did a um, hundred days of drawing no, 100 days of making tiny things where I would um, construct little teeny tiny versions of things out of cardboard or just recyclable stuff around my house that was really fun but it was really time consuming um, and then I've had a couple other sort of failed projects well I shouldn't say failed projects I didn't make it to 100 days <laughs> <laughs> So last last year during the pandemic I was trying to do 100 days of sharing flowers so I was trying to keep it really broad so that it could cover just like taking pictures or like something like that Um, what I really wanted to do was draw more and I was having trouble incorporating that back into my life. Um, And I think I made it to about 50 days, but um, I need need to, like, I feel like definitely in the last month or two, I haven't been doing as much of that. I've been finishing up some of the work for the museum of science and I've been working on some other projects. So I haven't been doing as much of the daily playing aspect, but I think what I like about the hundred days project and the linda berry journals is that they're really low stakes um even if you're sharing them on social media if you're planning to do a hundred then you know if you post something one day and go oh i really like that you know that's great you'll do it again the next day and if you post something you're like ah this one wasn't as great like it doesn't really matter because you know you're going to be doing another one the next day so um Yeah, I've seen some of
0: those. They're so great looking. Could you share with our listeners just quick what your um, Instagram handle is if they want to follow this and see all these?
2: Yeah, my Instagram handle is at the rule. So at T-H-E-R-E-U-L, like my last name. And um, I think if you look up, I think I've I've got the hashtag right there in my profile of the 100 days of making tiny things and 100 days of drawing on photos. So if you just want to see those, then you can click on that. And they're also both I have some of like the best of some of my favorites. So I left out the ones I didn't like as much on my my website.
0: Oh, of course. (laughs) Editing is all part of the process. (laughs) When you're doing your scientific illustrations um, for the museum and stuff, are you more illustrating tangible, like things that we can see, or are you also illustrating processes and stuff we can't necessarily see?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, so far I've mostly focused on Sort of, you know, like like what I studied, like this organism level biology. So I did. um, So the Discovery Center is closed now. That was their area for younger children. But I had done this very long. I think it was about 16 feet long and about 18 inches high. Image of New England forest animals, Um, and so it was sort of like, you know, they had a specific number of animals that they wanted in the image, and like sort of little narratives about what was happening. Like the skunk was stealing an egg, and all these things were happening. So I. So I illustrated that. Um, and so I try to get a balance between, you know, some scientific accuracy for sure. Um, and that one, I was also trying to go for like the correct size of things, approximately mm-hmm. correct size. Um, but then I also, you know, I I also go for a lot of stylization too, um, mm-hmm. because I wanted it to sort of feel like this hand, even though I do every all my drawing for murals on my computer, and then they print them on... Um, like a mural fabric um, Mm -hmm. so that they can move the mural around if they need to, which is great because like the Discovery Center, they knew that that space was gonna be changing over um, several years so they can move it. Um, And the same thing for the upcoming exhibit that's going to be at the museum this fall. Um, They are doing a project on um, climate change across New England. So they asked me to do three separate murals of different um, sort of habitats in New England. So there's an urban-esque, mural and a coastal mural and a forest mural. And it wasn't any specific place in New England, but it's sort of meant to be like representative of something that could be in New England. So I had to pull a lot of different reference materials and then also make sure that I'm getting all of the key species that they wanted to have in the image.
0: Yeah, that's why I always love science illustrations rather than just looking at photographs sometimes because at least like for entomology and stuff, sometimes it's great using field guides like Petersons that have illustrations rather than photographs because when you're looking at a photograph, it's just looking at one individual insect versus an illustration can kind of capture like the average of what the insect looks like and you might not find an exact in- replica of that picture, but it will look more similar to any of the ones you might find than the photograph, which is, might just be a little bit skewed towards one direction or the other. And I feel like when you're talking about with the like different ecologies and stuff of the area, your illustration could get more of that in too.
2: Absolutely. Like, and I think there's a staging aspect to it too. Like, if you think about like, if you're talking about a specific species and you're like, okay, like this, there's an identifying mark on, you know that this species tends to have and like, in order to see it you have to see like this part of their neck or something or like this part of their thorax so like the the image has to be staged where you can actually see that part of their body and like it's it's very unusual I mean nature photographers are amazing but they you know in order to get like the right angle um and then like you know that it has all the legs or something like that <laughs> um, like I, I one of the things I drew was a possum and I sort of drew it and in all the images, you can only see three of the legs of the possum. And that's one thing they ask. They're like, can you just add an extra leg in there so, so that we know it has four legs? You know, like, and that's, you, you're not always going to see all of the limbs in, of any creature in an image. Or even like when you're taking mm-hmm. pictures of humans, right? Like sometimes you might notice that somebody's hand looks really big because it's much closer to the camera. But that's not really representational of what a human hand generally looks like, right?
0: And yeah. I'm sure the people at the museum would be annoyed because every single kid would be like, "Why does that only have three legs?"
2: Right. exactly because because the younger kids are kind of the more literal they are in approaching okay. images, I think. So um, yeah, I agree. i like I like illustrations because I think that they can sort of clarify what you're going for in the image, mm-hmm. whereas a photograph sort of might have a lot of other information in it that isn't pertinent to maybe what your educational goal is. Mm -hmm.
0: Can you tell our listeners again what the name of this museum is? So if they wanna go see some of your work in person.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's the Museum of Science in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, the exhibit, the Climate Change in New England exhibit is going to be opening, I think in September. I think it's gonna run for the whole fall um, of 2021. Um, And it'll be in the Nichols Gallery, which is upstairs by the Butterfly Garden. That's so exciting,
1: Sarah.
0: We have to take a field trip there together. Yeah. Be fun. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to STEM Women in Kidlet, hosted by Artemis Rarig and Brudjani LaRocca. We're here today talking with science educator and Kidlet author illustrator, Sarah Lynn Rule. Um,
1: okay. So I, now I'm going to ask a question to which I'm not even sure I understand the answer or the question, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. So. Okay. <laughs> Does having an animation background change the way you think about illustration?
2: Um, I, th- I think so, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, in several ways. So I think when I decided to go back to school as an adult, you know, I hadn't been drawing for a really long time. Like I sort of drew, I feel like a lot of times you see um bios of illustrators in picture books. And they say, so-and-so has been drawing since they could pick up a pencil, right? Like, if, I feel like I've seen that so many times. And whenever I see that, I think, well, I loved drawing when I was a kid. And then when I was about 11 or 12, I sort of stopped drawing because I wasn't able to draw things in the way that I wanted them to look. And I felt a lot of pressure to get things right. And um, so I stopped drawing for a really long, really long time. I think that happens to a lot of adults. A lot of people that I meet say, I can't draw. And I think, well. That just wasn't something that, you know, your schooling focused on and you just haven't been able to practice. That's you know my feeling about drawing in general. I think that if you're able to um, form you know letters like the 26 letter, right, 26 letters to the alphabet. If you usually
1: can, at you know, least in the language, yes. right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like the number 27 a lot. So I feel like I'm always leaning towards 27. <laughs> but, <laughs> Twenty-six letters somehow. <laughs> if you can draw those shapes, then I think you know you're capable of. You have the physical ability to draw. Um, I think it's just you know that's really not what you know what I found. American culture really emphasizes visual communication. Is not something that I got in school. So back to your question about how animation sort of gets into that. When I went back to school, I was thinking, well, do I want to do illustration, or do I want to do animation? animation. And what I found really appealing about animation is this um, illusion of life and this um, sort of the dynamic approach to movement. So you can, you know, obviously, you know, when you're doing animation, it's one drawing after another, like a flip book, right? So for each second of on-screen animation, you've got, you know, 12 to, well, usually you have about 24 frames, but usually it's maybe like each drawing is held for two frames so it's maybe 12 12 drawings per second of on-screen animation so you have to really draw and draw and draw and draw and you have to like capture the feeling of the movement in every one of those drawings and so I try to capture that in my um, singular drawings that I mostly do now Um, and I think so I think there's there's that. And a lot of the principles of animation that I learned about, there's 12 principles that were laid out by some of like the Disney, there's these nine old men from Disney. Like that's, that's what they called themselves. And, um, they, they sort of outlined, you know, these guys who were like working in the thirties and forties and really developing the Disney animation style. Um, they developed these animation principles, which include like staging and includes like, um, Uh, exaggeration and things like that, that really can help inform your illustration. And one other thing about animation that I think has helped me is that because you have to do so many drawings and you have to be pretty accurate, right? You can't like change the size of a head from one drawing to the next because then your head and your animation will look like it's kind of like, like it'll look like it's getting, (laughs) I'm trying to, for our podcast, (laughs) get the visual across, like it'll look like it's getting bigger and smaller, right? when really if you just want it moving across the page you don't want that effect so you have to get really good at drawing over and over again and if you mess up you have to just draw it again you have to keep going keep going and so that's something that whenever I'm having trouble with an illustration I just remind myself well you're trained as an animator and if you don't like this drawing just draw it again like if you don't like that piece just draw it again like just do it over just keep doing it um but that's how I think animation affects my illustration work. It's
0: mm-hmm. a long answer. <laughs> Sarah, you do a lot of um, 3D type stuff as well. And I was wondering if you ever did like stop motion animation with those, or if you like enact the characters or if those just get translated into more of a two-dimensional setting.
2: Yeah, so I haven't really done too much of that kind of work. It's I love motion animation like um the nightmare before christmas was one of my favorite movies when i was a kid growing up um so i love that kind of animation it's kind of a different approach than the hand-drawn animation that i that i learned um just because of the order of the drawings that you have to do and the order of the um the way that you do stop motion animation but i always loved when i was a kid i had a dollhouse and i loved building little things for it and like making food for my dolls and things like that so I think um and I really love the idea of like building a tiny little world and sort of like it and I love miniatures because Mm -hmm. it sort of feels like I don't know maybe it's because I have control over things (laughs) (laughs) it just I like and they I like it when I see miniature things but it just feels like this other world thing so yeah I, I think yeah I think if I were to do animation I would like maybe build a set and then do hand drawn animation on top of it sort of like I did nerp but that that would be a fun thing to do
0: at one point when i was a kid my parents gave me a dollhouse but with no furniture in it and they made me and so i had to make all my own furniture i was not that like sk- skilled but i would use you know like old toilet paper tubes and yeah make functional enough even if it wasn't aesthetically pleasing furniture with lots of scotch tape but right. you know
2: yeah yeah my kids do that all the time they actually built like at the beginning of COVID, they built this like big, like uh, Barbie house, like out of like all these different cardboard boxes. And they like put shingles, like individual post-it note shingles. And like, it was, it was crazy. And it was on our front porch. We have an enclosed front porch and it was there for like months and months and months. And finally I was like, we have to get rid of, I was like, what is this? Like, it's just like a random box. <laughs> They're like, that's, that's the refrigerator. You can't throw that out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I accum- My see. house
0: accumulated a lot of um, cardboard box sculptures over COVID. Yeah. I would say yeah. that's like the big thing that came out of COVID was my kids got very good at like cutting cardboard and duct taping things. And right. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. we'll have a whole future of engineers and architects on our hands later.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, a childhood quarters. full of uh, duct tape and <laughs> cardboard is always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, can we touch, can we just talk a little bit about NERP? I feel like that book is so much fun. So first of all, I think, so did it grow out of, um, did the illustrations like grow out of one of those 100 Days projects? And also I remember, so Sarah and I are um, critique partners and I remember you um, bringing this manuscript to us and like the nonsense words, like how joyful they were and also how like clear, it like it was what you were like what the characters were talking about even though these words <laughs> didn't actually exist in English. I just love it. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write and draw it?
2: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was a really fun book to work on. Um, yeah, so it definitely came out of two of the hundred day projects actually because there's drawing on the photos. I took photographs and I drew all the characters and all the food on the photographs on the computer, um, and then I also built the dining room set um, out of cardboard because the whole story sort of takes place in a dining room and there's a baby who's kind of a picky eater and there's parents who are making all these fancy monsters oh, they're all monsters I don't know if I said that <laughs> and um, <laughs> and there they make and there's a monster dog too and they're all making um, they're making all these like really elaborate dishes um, and trying to get the baby to eat and the baby's like mm, I don't want to eat any of that but like you said all the words are made up so what I tried to do is I made a list for the words. I, what I wanted, I was thinking about like enrolled um, dolls, like the BFG there's um they have like frumptious Snozcombers is one thing that the giant really likes to eat. And like, sort mm-hmm. of like, like those aren't real words. Right. And there were, there were a lot of other, and also like in like, do his talk, you know, like um, Carson Ellis's book, do his talk, that picture book where there are all these like bug creatures that are speaking a language and you can sort of mm-hmm. understand what they're saying. And I wanted to do something, you know, along those lines where there's this, um, there, there are these words that feel like something, even if we don't know what their exact meanings are. So I tried to write down all the words I could think of that, um, that had to do with food and eating and stuff. And then I sort of picked and chose the sounds that really made me feel like, um, feel those things oh but another thing though that I was thinking is that there was a scientific study that I have found oh I'm gonna have to look it up but that talks about the sounds of words and what how we associate them with different foods so sort of like like mm. crisp or like 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 with the versus like these round these rounded um I don't know like they, they made up they made up these um they took these nonsense words, I think one was like kiki, and one was like malabar or something like that. And then they would give you different shapes, and some were like pointy, and some were kind of like globular, right. And then they had people um, sort of assign names to the different things. And, you know, you would find that these like kind of short, sharper sounds were assigned to sharper shapes. And then these sort of like, you know, more globular sounding, right? <laughs> I think that word globular, right? Yes, <laughs> like, yes. Blah, 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 right? <laughs> <laughs> Blob, glob, yes.
1: Yeah, round, right. And like yeah. it feels,
2: it feels rounded and it feels, so it's like, and then, then the study was also talking about, you know, like how different companies would name, you know, an ice cream, right? Like versus yes. like name like a low fat cracker, right? Like you would, you would want to use like those crispy sounding words for a cracker, and you'd want to use these like rich, like globular.
0: <laughs> oh, here is This it. it Sarah? The Crunch Effect, Food Sound Salience as a Consumption
2: Monitoring Cue by Elder et al. 2016. So that study, I think, was referenced by this article. There was an article called, it says, does this name make me sound high fat, which is by Dan yeah. Jarofsky, and <laughs> and says why it just seems so right to call a cracker cheese it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oh and it, my god and it's an excerpt it's a article that's an excerpt from the language of food a linguist reads the menu and so it talks oh that's what I was, t- was talking about whether front front vowels that sort of come from from the front of your mouth these sharper ones versus like the like o's and all oh, like the sort of the back of your mouth and how that affects um like even like in other languages like chico means small mm-hmm. in Spanish I guess and like petit like it's all in the front versus uh-huh. like grand, which is like in the back of your mouth. It's like large, right. large. Oh, that right? makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was one of them. And then I also there was also a a study that I read <laughs> notes on reduplicative words in English by Joseph Kaladsky. And it was sort of talking about this like these things like wishy washy, griff graph, like these kinds of like sounds that are like mm. um these and so I wanted so I read this article, <laughs> Flim Flam, like all the, these words are sort of like I guess they're reduplicative.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So basically there was a lot of like literature searches and stuff that actually went (laughs) into the production of NERP, even though people might not realize that. So your STEM background actually did come in play in this, even though it's like writing nonsense, the science of nonsense words. Yeah. Yeah. and So there's
2: a lot of, there's a lot of thought behind the nonsense words. That was not accidental. I guess not (laughs) well I think also like I'm kind of I feel like you know I'm definitely kind of nerdy like I like all these like nerdy things and I also like you know falling down rabbit holes on the internet so I there's there is a lot of that in my process (laughs) and um good yeah and another thing that came into play for NERP was I also was looking at a lot of like 1950s style recipes like these like things that use a lot of like gelatin and like I don't know like hot dog manipulations and things like that So for for the inspiration. So I feel like I, that was something that was fun about this book was like pulling all these like very specific things mm-hmm. and throwing them together. Um, yeah. See how they've got to get, get along.
0: I actually did a big yes. project for my U S history class back when I was in high school, that was looking at how recipes had changed through the ages. I can't tell you a lot about history, but I do know that there used to be a lot of raw eggs in recipes and there aren't anymore. And the original Joy of Cooking had mm-hmm. recipes for cooking squirrel in it. And then new one mm-hmm.
2: doesn't. Yeah, I feel like that would be a lot of work. So many
0: bones. That might right? be all I remember from my
2: history class, but you know. <laughs> That's all you need? No. <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness. Oh, well. And I, I think it's really interesting too to think about how food has changed just in terms of like how people preserve it, right? And, how, and what is accessible. I mean, I think about like the kinds of vegetables that like Artemis, you and I were talking about like Mm -hmm. uh, CSAs and food share things across Massachusetts during the pandemic. And, um, you know, like what vegetables are accessible because I grew up in Brooklyn in the eighties. And like, now I think New York, you know, in a lot of neighborhoods in New York, there's, you have accessibility to like lots of different types of vegetables from farms that are sort of local and that kind of thing. And like when I was growing up, like the supermarkets had, nothing like you like you could you could get like two kinds of apples and like that was your fruit variety like there wasn't um, like green ones or red ones <laughs> and, and pretty much yes yes yeah. yeah and now you go to any supermarket there's like eight different varieties and uh, so I think just the way that food distribution has mm-hmm. changed even from- like
0: kale wasn't a thing when I was a kid right and like oh my now gosh. there's like you know my kids eat kale and tatsoi and bok choy and all this like stuff and they know what it all is and yeah, we, had I to, we, we couldn't find cilantro. Mm. Like
1: my parents were like, nobody has cilantro. We had to go to like, they basically went to um, a Filipino grocer and like he yeah. basically had a whole side business, like making sure that certain <laughs> things that Indian people would want also were mm-hmm. well stocked right. in his story. It was just, it was crazy.
2: It was a totally yeah. different time. Yeah. I didn't try avocados until I was in college. Mm hmm. Yeah. Those I really remember the either. first
0: time I ate avocado and it was like a big deal. And like my kids yeah. have definitely eaten an avocado from, yes. right? it wouldn't yeah. be a no, thing for them. Yeah.
1: I didn't eat avocados until I was in college either. Yeah, and I was slightly dubious.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. Me too. I was yeah. And the clear. reason I oh. ate
0: avocado like earlier was because <laughs> my brother had a friend from California who had like, oh, you know, right. brought it's us an avocado and it avocado. was a big deal.
1: <laughs> and okay. I didn't have Sushi. I never tried sushi until I was like out, almost out of college. And that was because I went and visited a friend in California. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. If I die, just like tell my family what happened. Okay. And he was like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but my children, they're so into sushi. It, is, it just makes me laugh. And I'm just like, yeah, this is a completely different world that they're growing up yeah. in. Yeah.
2: There's just so much more access. I was thinking, like, I also didn't have sushi until. I was out of college because I was a vegetarian in college. So I didn't have like real sushi until I was out of college. And I was thinking like my grandparents passed away when I was like, you know, 12 and 14. And I was like, did my grandparents ever have sushi? Like, it's just, it was interesting to think about that. Like, you know, that they lived in Massachusetts and like, sushi was not like widely available to, you know.
0: Right. Ironically, the first. Yeah. The first sushi I ever ate was an avocado roll because I was a vegetarian.
2: Right, and, yeah. <laughs> I'm
0: like, oh, full circle this there again. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me wonder though, what foods were like? I, I'm like, wow, we we've eaten so many different foods that our like parents didn't know about. I'm like, what are our kids now going to think? Like, oh, they never ate this or this. and
2: and it probably goes the other
0: direction too right (laughs) because I've never eaten a squirrel before and that might have been really common back in the 50s or
2: something my dad grew up in Queens in New York and he used to go fishing for eel in like the bay there I guess he used to he used to he and his friends used to go fishing for eel and then he would bring half of them to the butcher and sell them to the butcher and then he would bring the rest of them home and they would just eat eel that he caught in the bay which is crazy that he would I mean maybe people still do that now I don't know I don't live in Queens anymore I mean but like still (laughs) I'd be surprised (laughs) (laughs) you'll just just go go hunting with a slingshot for rabbits in Queens (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you can't do that
0: (laughs) yeah I'm sure lots of people do that across America but probably not in Queens as much I
1: think there's a lot a big opportunity for venison I think deer have overrun Long Island so I think that uh, yeah. yeah I think that I think if you wanted to, you could probably do that, but I, I don't, if I, it becomes clearer and clearer to me that if I actually had to obtain my own meat, I would be even more of a vegetarian than I are. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I don't eat meat that often, but like, I'm okay with it. But like, if I had to go obtain it for myself, forget it. I would be done. I, I nope. don't even, yeah. not can't, can't even no, I, total,
2: I totally agree. We had friends who were vegetarians. They decided to not become vegetarians anymore. And as part of that process, they decided to like start to slaughter their own meat. And I was like, that's intense. Like, and, and I was, and I was like, if I had to do that, like, and they went to like a small farm where everybody was like, all the animals were like humanely raised and everything. And like, they faced, they were like, we're going to face this part of the process. And I was like, wow, good, f- good for you. Cause I, like, I would definitely go, f- I'm, we're pretty vegetarian too. <laughs> I would go. F- like I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with yeah. that.
1: I yeah. don't really need to eat any of that anymore.
0: Nope. Nope. Did, did um the vegetarianism <laughs> come first or did the working with animals like in college and working at the, z- going to the zoo and stuff come first?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I wasn't a vegetarian from when I was like 12 to when I was probably about uh, like 20 or so. And then, and then, and then I, I never like really ate like all that much meat. Actually, that's not true. We, we, <laughs> for a while, we, we joined a meat share from one of the local mm-hmm. farms and then we got so much meat and I was like, it was way more meat than we ever wanted to eat. Um, so we ate a lot of meat during that time just because I was like, we have so much meat, but, um <laughs> but aside from that, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, when I worked at the, at the zoo, I was at first I was a docent. I actually started when I was 12. So I was a docent. So I was kind of like a volunteer. And like when people would come, like a lot of times I would hang out with the, we had Hamadryas baboons and um, in this really cool, like large setting and they had these big windows. So they sort of had their own natural setting. And then, um, but they had these really, really red bottoms. The females had these like super inflamed looking bottoms. Mm -hmm. So people would come and be like, "Ew, what's wrong with her butt? And like, you'd have to be like, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, this is like part of their process. And like, when they're in heat, like it swells up. And like, so you had to like explain to people um, what, uh, you know, all that kind of <laughs> thing. So that's, that sort of, so I feel like that probably didn't influence my vegetarianism too much. <laughs> 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 Although there was a cow, there was a small cow because there was a little petting farm. And I don't know if she was the only cow in Brooklyn at the time, but her name was Agnes. And she was a kind of cow called a Dexter cow, which I think was like a Scottish Highlands cow, maybe? And she was small. Like she her she could put her head on my shoulder and that was about as tall as she was. Um, and I would just sit and like scratch her neck when nobody was around, like we would just hang out and I would scratch her neck the whole time. So um anyway, so I had a cow friend growing oh. up in Brooklyn. And will this <laughs> maybe, cow friend, maybe that's it. Has this cow friend
0: appeared in any of your books?
2: She hasn't. And even in my book, Farm the Farm, I do have a cow in it. And my kids think that the cow looks like our dog. So I guess I didn't do a very faithful cow representation. <laughs> Maybe just our <an> expression. <laughs> the dog like expression.
1: There you go. It's a very loyal, moochy <laughs> kind of cow. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. This is amazing. I I love how all of this really comes back to animals.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess it does. Yeah. I really like animals. I I like I like biodiversity and I like, it's just crazy. Like how many species I remember at, at the museum of science, when I was teaching in the overnight program, I'm going to get this number wrong and I'm talking to an entomologist. So I probably shouldn't say this, but we had a Madagascan hissing cockroaches. Mm-hmm. And I think there were like one of the things we were supposed to share. And I was more practiced in it then, but there were like, but there's like 4,000 species of roaches. Is that somewhat accurate? But uh, anyway, it's just, it's crazy that there's, so many species oh you know what we were at the um we were at the Tower Hill Botanic Garden which is in Central Mass and they had the Caterpillar Lab which is an organization in New Hampshire visiting and they had set up this sort of like ring of tables with all these like native species of plants and they had all these native caterpillars that live in New England just like arrayed out on these these vases of you know greenery and sometimes Mm -hmm. inside little netting things and it's insane like there's a lot of them that's great it's crazy and some of them are huge like bigger than my index finger and some of them are tiny and like covered in beautiful colored hair like it's it was like an alien world and you would be like wow this must be like some kind of tropical caterpillar. no they live here in new england like in our crazy winters and everything and and wow and i feel like and i studied you know some of this stuff i didn't dive in as deeply as i could have but i was i was amazed um it's just crazy. And recently, um, starting in the pandemic, actually, my older daughter and I started going on walks, um, nature documentation walks with a local organization called Earthwise Aware, where they use this iNaturalist app. Um, I don't know if you've used that before. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's super cool where you can take photos with your phone of like insects, plants or whatever. That's all we are able to take photos of birds move too fast. for us, And, um, and then you could upload them and it can sort of guess what species it is or you can identify it if you know. And then other local experts or amateurs like you um, can confirm or make other suggestions. And then there's, so there's sort of like this crowdsourcing um, science information. So you can, so we've been going with a group of like very knowledgeable people. So we've been learning so much. Um, and that's, I like walking through the woods and like identifying things because it makes me feel like you know, It makes me feel like walking through and, you know a neighborhood and be like, hey, I know you. Like it's a witch witch hazel tree, you know. Like, <laughs> I don't know.
0: In your books, like what percentage of your plants and animals that you draw would you say are just like invented versus being like specific species? Mm. Probably I mean your I mean, in I your fictional mean... stuff, obviously, not in your scientific yeah, my illustration. Fictional
2: stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well it's yeah. Um I mean, in the books that have been published, I mean, they're all, they're probably all somewhat made up. Um, But I have some books. I have a book that, you know, hasn't been published yet um, called bean bean sprout. Reggie has seen it. And that book is sort of about a kid trying, you know, like you'd like try to grow seeds in the classroom. And it's a kid who like loves is so excited about the seed and it doesn't sprout. (laughs) And, and, I think, and it's interesting because like for that one, I really, I think I just made up all the plants. I made up all the seeds. I made up a bunch of random seeds and a bunch of, and I, and I really could have, um, I probably should have been more specific about it, but I, I, don't, I don't think that's what I was going for when I was drawing them. I was sort of going for more the feelings of it. Um, but I'd like to, I'd like to write, I'd like to write a book sort of about that magic of like, once you learn the name of something, then you can see it better do you you know what i mean like um radio lab do you know that podcast um they had a piece a while ago their oh their colors episode which is like one of their best episodes um sort of about color perception and they were talking about naming um when certain words for colors came into the english language or came into like whatever language i guess um and sort of like how then people were able to perceive and a lot of times the words sort of developed when people developed the capability of producing that color um Ooh. and so um and so basically like one of the arguments that they were sort of making I'm paraphrasing this is that you know when you have a name for something then you can see it better um mm. and so like I feel that way like when I learn about like when I'm out on an earthwise aware walk and they teach me about a certain plant you know, I see this, you know, this flower, this yellow flower. And I think I've never seen this before in my life. Right. And, and they're showing me, okay, this is the way it's like, it has these, these like little hairs on it or something. This is the way you see it. And then the next time I go in the woods, I see it everywhere. And I go, how, how was mm-hmm. this here before? Yes. And mm-hmm. I never saw it. Right. Like it's, and the same thing where like, even with um, cultivated plants, like, you know, if, if I buy a pretty plant, uh, now I'm trying to buy more native plants, but you know, if I buy a specific plant at a nursery, and I plant it in my yard and like I'm touching it and I'm looking at it closely and I know the name of it. Then I walk through my neighborhood and I can see it everywhere when when I think yeah. this is a new thing that I haven't seen before. And I think like that's crazy. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think that happens all the time. I feel like um, it happens like with a um, a concept you hadn't seen before or like a word that is new to you. And then all of a sudden you're like, what in the world? It's everywhere. Uh, I think it's very interesting. And I think that, you know, that's part of like the psychology of our brains where it's like once, because I think in the past you might've seen those things and just glossed over them because you didn't recognize them as anything special. And then once you're, yeah, Yeah. once your brain was like attuned to the fact that you know what this thing is and you can recognize it, then it just starts recognizing it. It's so, it's so interesting to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love uh, I love that.
2: Yeah. And I imagine too, like when you were doing your medical training or, you know, Reginy, or when you were doing your entomology training, like you came across that, like with specific um mm-hmm. like body parts or I don't know, like uh, <laughs> I don't know. It makes Is you start or, things a
0: certain yeah.
1: way. Yeah, right. like certain certain words. I, I feel like you, right, you expand like I I'm gonna use the word vocabulary for lack of a better concept like you expand your vocabulary either whether it's visual or auditory or whatever and then once you've expanded it then you're like oh now I see all these places where this thing occurs whereas before I was just ignorant of all of that stuff yeah
2: it's fascinating
1: yeah yeah sort of lumping it
2: all into this amorphous group before and now it's its own unique thing and you can see it for what it is and that can help you see more yeah yes and and I think
1: (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. And I think that but this applies, of course, to children's books, because then when children learn about something in a book or mm-hmm. they just find something intriguing, then they're going to go out and see it everywhere, too, which is so, yes. so cool.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And speaking of books, do you have a STEM book recommendation you can give our listeners?
2: Yes, I have some um, recommendations for sure. Um, there's um, the book The Girl Who Drew Butterflies, How Maria Marion's Art Changed Science. I don't know if it's Mariah or Maria Marion, but it's by Joyce Sidman and it won a cyber award. And it's amazing. It's a chapter book and it talks about a woman who um, lived in, oh gosh, I'm forgetting now. She lived a long time ago, like in the 1600s, I want to say, or maybe even before that. And she um, was super interested in like metamorphosis and it, people kind of just thought that bugs were like magic or like devils or something. <laughs> and like, so she, but she was like really interested in like how they, how they grew and changed and she, she drew them. Her father had been um, like a tulip painter, I think. And um, so that's sort of how she, she learned um, painting and anyway, super fascinating. And, oh, and it ties back into our Caterpillar conversation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, they are yeah. magical,
1: right? Scientifically yes. magical.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then of course there's um, Haley Barrett's book, what um, Miss Mitchell saw. Um, which mm-hmm. is about the astronomer Mariah Mitchell. And then um, when I asked my kids to recommend, they said I had to talk about the science comic series. And I don't know if you've shared those, anybody has shared those before, N- oh, oh my goodness. These are amazing. So they're a series of graphic novel. It's on um, the science, get to know your universe, the science comics series. And it's um, from first, second books. And there's a whole ton of them. I mean, our library has a million of them. We own three of them currently and Miriam's favorite is um, my my older daughter's favorite is the brain, the ultimate thinking machine, and it's by Tori Wolcott and illustrated by Alex uh, Groudens or Groda I don't know how you say Alex's name, um, but it's they're amazing. It has so much scientific information and it's in this really fun graphic novel format. Um, I also like the ones they have about dogs and cats and They've also got trees and bats and coral reefs and dinosaurs. They've got so many things, so whatever you want. But it doesn't really matter, I think, if you think you're interested in the topic ahead of time because when you pick up the book, there's super interesting stuff in it, so yeah.
1: That's so great, (laughs) and that's such a great uh, link between um, kind of STEM nonfiction and illustrations, which is just like so cool. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Thank you, Sarah. You're so much fun. It's always fun to talk to you.
2: Thank you. I had, I had a lot of fun. It was really, really exciting to talk about. I <laughs> nerd out a little bit about drawing and science and scientific process. So thank you for inviting me.
0: <laughs> for more information about Sarah and her books, you can visit her website, Ruler, which is spelled R-E-U-L-E-R.com. You can find a link to that in the podcast notes or on our Facebook page. STEM Women in kid lit, And now it's time for STEM book recommendations. My STEM book recommendation is Our House is on Fire, Greta Thunberg's Call to Save the Planet, written and illustrated by Jeanette Winter. This picture book gives kids a real jumping off point um, to start learning about climate change through the lens of one of the most famous climate change activists of our time.
1: My STEM book recommendation is Friendbots Blink and Block Make a Wish, written and illustrated by Vicki Fang. This is an absolutely adorable uh, early reader graphic novel about two little robots who meet on a playground. Uh, it includes some robot facts and um, the idea of wishing on a coin.
0: Thank you for listening to STEM Women in Kidlet the podcast about women with degrees or jobs in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and math, who also happen to write children's books. Happy reading!